0: Our reading today is Psalm 131, and that can be found on page 625 in the Blue Church Bibles or on on an app or whatever you might use to be able to um, read God's Word. Psalm 131. My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I have calmed and quietened myself. I am like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forever. More. Heavenly Father, I thank you um, that pride is the thing that you see that drives us from wanting to know you. And I thank you that in the Lord Jesus Christ, and particularly on the cross, you deal with our pride. That we might come to know how good it is and wonderful it is to know you, to be in relationship with you. So I pray, Father God, I thank you for the Holy Spirit. I thank you by that Spirit. I pray you may speak through John James as he explains and shows us what you want to say to us. And I thank you that you hear our prayers because of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. In his name I pray. Amen. Amen.
1: Amen. Well, good morning, folks. Um, it's really great to be here with you. My, ne- my name is John, and I am the pastor of Crossway Church in Northfield, in South Birmingham. I used to be a member of City Church many years ago. In fact, I was the very first ministry trainee that City Church ever had, me and Helena, Helena White, and uh, we weren't called ministry trainees, we were called City Slickers. Yeah, that name got very quickly changed. Please do keep your Bibles open at Psalm 131. So life has a very, uh, a, a, a way, a good way of cutting us down to size. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. I certainly have on many occasions. There was one particular occasion when my daughter, my eldest daughter, she's 12 now, but she was about seven at the time, and she was playing in the school playground. She fell over and she gashed her head really badly. And it was so bad that the school phoned for an ambulance and rushed her to hospital. And I got the phone call from my wife and she said, look, I'm at at the school, I'm going to travel in the ambulance with faith to the hospital, will you join me at the children's hospital to kind of help care for our daughter? I said, absolutely, you can count on me. I dropped everything, got in the car, drove to the children's A&E department, rushed in, went to the reception, I'm here, I am the father of faith, James. I'm here to save the day, to be the support that she needs at this moment. I rushed in, and just as I arrived in the little kind of consultation room, uh, the the plastic surgeon was there to hear the story. I have to say, she's absolutely fine. There was no kind of lasting damage whatsoever. But at the time, it felt really serious. And, and, And the plastic surgeon was removing the bandage and was asking my daughter, what actually happened? What What took place? And so she was explaining in great detail exactly how she'd got this gash on her head, at which point I just started feeling a little bit warm and a little bit kind of woozy. And the next thing I knew, rather than being the dad who was going to save the day, I was lying on the floor in the children's A&E department with the doctor sort of saying, are you all right, Mr. James? Are you okay? My wife was um, not pleased with me at that moment. They then said, well, we're going to have to put you in a bed, Mr. James. Is that all right? No, please don't put me in a bed. And they put me in a bed that had clearly been prepped for a very, very ill child. And I was having to lie in this bed. And then they said, we're going to have to give you oxygen, I said, please don't give me oxygen. And you're going to have to wait until the doctor can see you. And so I had to lie in this bed and wait until the doctor could see me. Eventually a doctor came and he said, are you all right, Mr. James? I said, no, I'm very, very embarrassed. At which point he said, well, I think we need to admit you to the children's hospital. With a smile on his face, at which point I got out of the bed and said, I'm going. See you later. Well, this psalm that we're looking at this morning is all about the path away from pride. It is a psalm that should cut us down to size. So just look at the first verse of the psalm, the very first sentence. My heart is not proud, Lord. I wonder how many of us could actually say that this morning. How many of us could really genuinely look in the mirror and say... My heart is not proud. Actually, the Bible tells us really that pride is at the root of so much sin in our lives. Just think all the way back to the the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve. Isn't it pride really that's at the root of their disobedience against God? So I want to suggest this morning, as we look at these verses together, and we're going to look at it a little bit first, then we're going to sing, and then we're going to look at a little bit more, is that actually, really the heart of what it means to be a Christian, one of the key jobs that we have, really, as Christians, is to seek to cultivate humility. It's at the very center of our discipleship. It is a daily task. It's daily heart work. Charles Spurgeon said of this psalm, 131, he said, it might be the shortest psalm to read, but it is the longest psalm to learn. It's a life's work. I don't know if any of you here this morning are gardeners, any gardeners, Any keen gardeners? A few keen gardeners. Not that many by the looks of things. But some of you, I'm sure, are. I'm not a brilliant gardener. But the whole point with gardening is that you can't just do it once a year. It doesn't really work like that. You can't just do a big blitz and then the garden looks great forever. It is a daily task or a weekly task. It's something that requires continual maintenance if your garden is going to look good. And so Psalm 131 is the garden maintenance psalm for our hearts. And it's all about the path away from pride. And really, I want us to see it as three steps. Three steps that the psalmist has taken. Three steps that we're encouraged to take in our lives. And the first step is this. We are to know Our size. We are to know our size. Look at verse 1 with me. My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. He says, My heart is not proud. Literally, what he's saying is, I do not have a high heart. And he's talking about his relationship with God. He's saying, I have not raised my heart to the level of God. I I don't have a high opinion of myself in relation to God. How often do we live like we are little godlets? People who basically believe we are the gods of our own lives and our own little world. The psalmist says we are to embrace, we are to embrace our creatureliness. So imagine for a moment there is a horizontal line and everything above the line is the creator. And everything below the line is his creation. Well there is only one person above the line, there is only one thing, one entity above the line. It is God himself. And everything else, every single other thing you can possibly think of, including you and me, belongs under the line as part of the creation he has made. And we spend our lives, don't we, trying to sort of hop over the line, trying to get beyond who we are, who God's made us to be. But we're to embrace the creator-creature distinction. We're to live happily, at peace under the line as creatures that god has made and as creatures we are therefore nothing more in the end than dust that he has blown his breath into one preacher calls us decorated dust that's it and some of us might look a little bit more decorated than others and looking at you this morning, I can see some of you are nice-looking dust. Some of you, well, not so much, but there we are. But the point is, that's all we are, is decorated dust. And we're reminded of it, aren't we, at key moments, significant moments, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, we say. And it's true that we are made in the image of God as decorated dust. We We have value and worth because of that. But we are not godlets. How many of us here know the name of our parents? I'm sure most of us know the name of our parents. How many of us know the name of our grandparents? Most of us. How many of us know the name of our great-grandparents? Do you know the name of your great-grandparents? Do you know the name of your great-great-grandparents? Does anybody know the name of their great-great-great-grandparents? No, nobody. There might be one like geeky boffin who's done all their family tree or something like that. But the point is this. You too will be forgotten. To you who boast, Tomorrow's gain, Tell me what is your life. A mist that vanishes at dawn. All glory be to Christ. So we have high hearts, and we're to lower our hearts against God. Know your size. Not only high hearts, he says, actually, we're to lower our eyes as well. We have this tendency towards high eyes. He says, my eyes are not haughty. Again, this is the idea that he's raising his eyes, but not against God at this point, against other people. This is about the comparison game. And we're very good at playing the comparison game, aren't we? Because it's how we give ourselves value and worth and how we know we're doing all right. Because we look at the person next to us and we say, oh, we're doing all right. We're doing better than them. We're okay. We must be all right. And it's not just for winners. It's for losers too. It's the thing that puffs us up and it's the thing that devastates us when we compare ourselves against others i was in a meeting not that long ago and it was a meeting of church leaders and i was watching somebody else really taking the lead envisioning the room they were a charismatic personality they 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 kind of held forth and everybody hung on every word they said and it was amazing to see Such incredible competence and command and vision and wisdom. So why did I leave so devastated? Rather than thankful. Well, it's high eyes. It's haughty eyes. That's what it is. But the third little aspect of knowing our size is high ideas we're not to have high ideas look at the end of verse 1 I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me now he's not talking about godly aspirations here you may remember uh, the words of William Carey attempt great things for God expect great things from God Well, that's fantastic, isn't it? And it comes out of a godly aspiration to step out in faith and believe that more is possible with God. But actually, this is really talking about ambitions that are beyond us. Trying to be something we are not. Trying to attempt things that are really driven by a worldly ambition. Actually, the more that we grow as Christians, the more really we should be aware of our limitations. When was the last time you said, I don't know? Maybe to one of your kids. <laughs> Or a colleague at work. We don't like to say it. Do we? we don't like to admit that there are things we don't know. When I was at Bible college, this was a, a little while ago now, but uh, we were encouraged to have a little book with the, word, with the, with the letters AFL on it. And whenever there was something we didn't understand or there was something we didn't know or a question we didn't have an answer to, we were to write it in our AFL book, Awaiting Further Light. We don't often live that way, do we? And it's very quick to forget. Actually, it's very quickly, as someone in pastoral ministry, that you feel... the the sort of pressure to somehow have all the answers. But we don't. And actually the greatest teachers are those who understand how little they really know. The greatest politicians realize how little is in their control. And the greatest Christians know just how small they are. And this isn't about pushing ourselves down. This isn't about having some sort of low self-esteem. This is about becoming level, becoming the person, be, becoming, coming to terms with the person that God has made us to be. The world wants to tell us all of the time, we can be whatever we want to be. Now, it's patently not true, isn't it? If you've ever seen me dance you will know. I'm not even going to give you a demonstration this morning. We cannot be whatever we want to be. My kids remind me of that regularly. But actually, for the Christian, we're not those who can be whatever we want to be, but we're those who are called to be who we've been made to be. And so often we spend our lives projecting a bigger version of ourselves than is real. That's basically what social media exists for, isn't it? To project a bigger version than reality. But what actually if it was the other way around? Just imagine for a moment if actually the reality was bigger than the projection. That the closer someone came to us, the more impressive we were. (laughs) We spend our lives living like our outsides are bigger than our insides. What if our insides were bigger than our outsides? That is humility. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where someone has oversold and under delivered. Maybe it was a double glazing salesman. If you are a double glazing salesman, you are welcome. Sorry, that was unfair. But I remember the very first car that we bought. We were very excited about it, my wife and I. It was a Peugeot 306 turbo diesel. It was a beautiful car on the outside. In fact, even as we were buying it, it just seemed almost too good to be true. And it was. And my wife was driving the car. We'd only had it a few days. She was, driving, she was possibly doing five or maybe six miles an hour. As she drove off her parents' drive, and the car just went, pew, bang. And she opened up the bonnet, and there was a hole in the engine. And she phoned me and she said, John, it looks like there's a hole in the engine. I said, there's there's no such thing as a hole in the engine. That's not a thing. She phoned the AA and the AA man came and he opened the bonnet and he said, there's a hole in your engine. And I still wasn't convinced that a hole in the engine was a real thing. And so we phoned the guy that we'd bought the car off, and he said, well, I'll send my engineer around. He said, hole in the engine, that's not a thing. Opened the bonnet, and the engineer said, there's a hole in the engine. And very kindly, because actually we didn't have a leg to stand on, it was all bought in completely the wrong way, the guy said, we're going to replace the engine. But the whole point was this. The outside of that car was way, way bigger than its inside. And it was an old banger dressed up as a good little runner. And really, as we pause at this moment and as we sing again and as we think about what it means for us to know our size, that is the question for us to think about in our hearts. What does it mean for us to have an inside that's bigger than the outside, to fight against the tendency to dress ourselves up as good little runners when we're just old bangers in need of God's grace. So let's, let's stand and let's sing together to take your seats. So we have thought together about the first step to know your size. Well, look now at verse 2 of Psalm 131. The second thing we're to do is to know our place. Not just our size, but our place. Look at verse 2. I have calmed and quieted myself. I'm like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Now when it talks here about a weaned child, uh, the way that we use that idea of being weaned is that it's a child that used to have milk and is no longer on milk, but has been weaned onto solids. Yes. But really what the psalmist means here is not that the baby has finished with milk altogether, but that the baby has finished feeding, finished their milk. So here we have a picture of a baby who has finished feeding their milk. Now, have you ever seen a baby who has finished feeding their milk? We sometimes call it milk drunk. And they're like this. If they have colic, they are not like that. But ordinarily, that is what a baby is like when it's finished Feed it. and that is the picture he's basically saying this is how we are to be in the arms of god this is how we're to be in our hearts in life as we live as christians now what is the opposite of a contented little baby well it's a kind of screaming baby isn't it <laughs> A baby that can't get comfortable, a baby that can't relax, a baby that can't switch off. And there's a sense in which pride turns us into crybabies of the worst kind, toddlers with tantrums who like to chuck their toys out of the pram when things don't go their way. It's not fair, God. Why did you allow it, God? How could you, God? Don't you love me, God? Now, for those of us, perhaps, who have children and who have been through that process with children, is it true when our children turn around and say to us as has happened to me on a number of occasions. Don't you love me? Is it true? Of course it isn't true. It's just that our understanding of what is needed, of what is required, of what needs to take place, is bigger than theirs. And this is a sort of knock-on effect, really, or an outworking of what it means to embrace our creator-creature distinction, to embrace our creatureliness, and to simply allow ourselves to to, to, to lie in the arms of God. And as funny as it is to imagine grown men and women in baby grows. Spitting out their dummies. Actually, in that kind of place, an adult behaving like a child can wreck homes and marriages and businesses and schools and churches and everything in their path. But I have calmed. And quieted myself. Pride brings noise. A lot of noise. A lot of answering back. We respond with more noise. But the humble Christian is to have a quietness before God. And dare I say, as well, before the circumstances God has placed us in as well. As I was preparing for this psalm, I was reminded of the story of Job. And if you know the story of Job, then you'll know that here is a man who had everything stripped away from his life. Even in the sovereignty of God. His life became a kind of tragic disaster in every area. And what then follows in Job is a whole load of advice that he's given by many different people. And occasionally it's good advice, but more often than not, it is simply noise. And then in verse, in chapter 38, so there you go, you've got 37 chapters of noise, basically. But then in chapter 38, God speaks. God breaks into the noise and finally has something to say. And this is what he says in chapter 38. Job, where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand who marked off its dimensions. Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? Or what were its foot set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness. When I fixed limits for it and set its doors and its bars in place. When I said, this far you may come and no further. Here's where you're proud waves halt. Where were you Job when all of this was going on? And he continues on and on with these rhetorical questions. And eventually he invites Job to speak. Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? He asked Job. Let him who accuses God answer him. And then Job Answered the Lord, we're told. And this is what Job says. I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I'll say no more. It's not easy, is it, to be quiet in humility before the Lord in the midst of the chaos of life but it starts by knowing our place knowing what it means to be held in the arms of God And the final step that the psalmist wants us to see, we've had know your size, we've had know your place. It's there in verse 3. It's really to know our purpose. Look at verse 3. Israel, put your hope in the Lord. Both now and forevermore. See, our purpose is not to have everything our way. He doesn't say, put put everything right in your life. (laughs) Build yourself a heaven here on earth. He says, put your hope in the Lord. We are to reverently serve God and wait with our hope in him. Because the the promise of Scripture and the good news of the gospel is that all that we are seeking to do for ourselves as proud little godlets, God has graciously done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Perhaps not in the way that we would have chosen it, or the way that we would have envisaged, but far, far, far more gloriously than that. See, the gospel teaches us, to use the, the words of Christianity explored, that we are far more wicked than we thought, but far more loved than we dreamed. See, all of our pride should melt away when we see the reality of our hearts. And yet there is no reason to despair as we see the reality of the gospel. Mark 10 verse 45 says that the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life. As a ransom for many. Jesus is the ultimate example of the humble servant. Actually, he's the one who had every right to, to come as as, as, the, as the glorious king, and yet he comes in humble service, not to be served but to serve. And as he steps into this world, God become man. He comes with a mission and a resolute intention to serve us all the way to death on a cross. Dying in our place, taking the wickedness of our hearts from us and bearing in his own death on the cross the punishment we And in his resurrection is the promise of life eternal for us in a new heaven and a new earth, a world put right, and a glorious kingdom that we could never build for ourselves. We just need to sort of get over ourselves, don't we? But his glory is greater than any manufactured glory we could ever produce. And the amazing thing about Jesus is that there is no anticlimax with Jesus. The closer we get to Jesus, the bigger, the bigger he becomes. And so we do not have a God who forever indulges our whims, but a God we can trust with our destinies. And that's our job. That's our purpose. That's what he's made us for. That's the thing that brings him glory. So know your purpose. Or to put it another way, trust Jesus and relax We can get a little bit annoyed by language like that sometimes. You might be sat there thinking, you have no idea what's going on in my life. But we are to be like contented, milk-drunk babies in the arms of the God who made us. One commentator says, he, he gives this psalm a title, and he says, here's the title for the psalm. How I gave up trying to fix things, and so should you. And if that annoys you, if that just annoys you a little bit this morning, then perhaps it's a sign of just how important this message really is for us. So Jesus says the path away from pride is the path to the cross, isn't it? It's at the foot of the cross where we will learn our size, learn our place, and learn our purpose. And as he says at the end, O Israel, it's really striking that he's, he's turning from something that is all about him and his relationship with the Lord to a sort of invitation to the people around him, Israel. Do this. Put your hope in God. Israel, come and hear what I've discovered. And it reminds us that humility is not thinking less of ourselves, but thinking of ourselves less and thinking of others more. That is love. Actually, humility should always work itself out in love, genuine love for our brothers and sisters. And it may well be that pride is the thing that is stopping you loving and serving your neighbor with an eternal significance. So what do we do with all of this? Well, the best way to grow in humility is to start doing humble things. Things that won't get you noticed. Things that are all about others and not ourselves. Washing the dishes. Hoovering the floor. Speaking last in a meeting or a room. Gravitating towards the marginalized and the outsider walking the long way round for the benefit of others. Giving in a way that means one hand doesn't even know what the other hand is doing. Uh, At Crossway Church we have Myself, and then we also have an assistant pastor, Phil Swinburne, who was also a ministry trainee here many years ago. And Phil's been with us now, I think, about seven years. He's been with us far, far too long, but we survive. And Phil bought me a book. Now, when the assistant pastor buys you a book, You know, that immediately I'm sort of thinking, hang on a minute. What does he think I need to know that he doesn't think I already know? When the book happens to be called The Imperfect Pastor, well, that is just, I mean, to be fair, that's just provocative, I would say. But I did eventually, about six months later, read the book. And I just wanted to read something from it to you. This morning, and he's talking about Christian ministry, but it applies actually to all of us, whatever uh, whatever we do with our working week. This is what he says. He says, as you enter ministry, you will be tem- you will be tempted to orient your desires towards doing large things in famous ways as fast and as efficiently as you can. But take note. A crossroads waits for you, and Jesus is that crossroads. Because almost anything in life that truly matters will require you to do small, mostly overlooked things over a long period of time with him. Almost anything in life that truly matters will require you to do small, mostly overlooked things over a long period of time with him. So as we finish, let's just close our eyes for a moment. This is a dangerous thing to do, isn't it? This far into a sermon, but... Just close your eyes for a moment. I want you just to think about tomorrow and your own context and what you will be doing tomorrow. Maybe you've got a busy day. Maybe you've got a quiet day. Maybe you're at home. Maybe you've got kids. Maybe not. Maybe you're at university. Maybe it's a busy work day for you. I don't know. Just think about your your own context. And I want you just to ask Yourself, what will humility look like for me? I want you to plan now. Plan now what it's going to mean for your inside to be bigger than your outside. And I'm going to pray. Father God as we respond to the truth of this psalm father i pray you just take away anything that's unhelpful that we've thought about and just root deeply in us the truths of this psalm that you might cultivate humility that we might see what it means for us to be belong to your creation to rest in your arms and place our hope in you. And that would be so liberating for us. It would free us from the constant impulse inside of us to somehow make our, puff ourselves up and extend our reach and be something we're not. And it would release us for humble, servant-hearted love. And then, Father, will you put us to work in a way that brings you all of the glory and magnifies the name of King Jesus, who came not to be served but to serve. And in his name we pray. Amen.